Greetings, folks. This is Rish Outfield, and that mysterious song you're hearing should tell you that this is the podcast that dares not speak its name. This is the podcast I'm going to try and do as close to every month as possible in 2023, uh, probably not January though, where I present my readings of other people's stories. It is uh, something that I quite enjoy and is a heck of a lot easier than writing my own story, finishing it, rewriting it, doing an audio version, editing that audio, and then talking about it. So what I am presenting to you today is the sound of my windshield wipers squirking on the other side of the glass. Yeah, I said squirking. Before I get to the story, let me warn you that the title of the story uh, is no longer politically correct. And uh, there's not anything I can do about that. I, I mean, it, you've already seen what the title is, right? It is The Squaw by Bram Stoker. Now, if that word offends you or, you know, makes you feel like you're not going to enjoy the story, you're not going to enjoy the story. It is a rough one. And um, about 20 years ago, I read Stoker's Dracula for the first time. And there was a part that particularly impressed me with how modern and gruesome and shocking it was to a 21st century reader. And it made me wonder about a 19th century reader. How shocking would that have been? And this story has something in common with that, other than being written by Stoker. It, it, it is a rough story, and it does depict a startling violence in it. And so uh, be warned about that. And I guess if you're still here for the rest of the story, I will see you on the other side. Oh, before I start, this story was first published in 1893, which was four years before Dracula. Uh, it was in a British magazine called Holly Leaves. Later, it was collected uh, in, in Stoker's third short story collection called Dracula's Guest and Other Weird Stories in 1914. Bram Stoker himself uh, was an Irish author who was, of course, best known, is still best known for the novel Dracula. He was the personal assistant of Henry Irving, the actor, and was business manager of the Lyceum Theatre that Irving owned. He was a theater critic. He wrote commentaries and stories. He died uh, in 1912 at the age of 64 in London, England, uh, due to something called locomotor ataxia. And I did look at the disease. It's caused by a degeneration of the posterior uh, column of the spinal cord, the dorsal white column. Uh, people afflicted with the disease walk in a jerky, non-fluid manner. They don't know where their arms and legs are without looking. He was 64. Okay, let's go. The Squaw by Bram Stoker Nuremberg at the time was not so much exploited as it has been since then. Irving had not been playing Faust and the very name of the old town was hardly known in the great bulk of the traveling public. My wife and I, being in the second week of our honeymoon, naturally wanted someone else to join our party, so that when the cheery stranger, Elias P. Hutchison, hailing from Ithsmanian City, Bleeding Gulch, Maple Tree County, Nebraska, turned up at the station at Frankfurt, and casually remarked that he was going on to see the most all-fired old Methuselah of a town in Europe, 
and that he guessed that so much traveling alone was enough to send an intelligent, active citizen into the melancholy ward of a daft house. We took the pretty broad hint and suggested that we should join forces. We found, on comparing notes afterwards, that we had each intended to speak with some diffidence or hesitation so as not to appear too eager. But the effect was entirely marred by our both beginning to speak at the same instant, stopping simultaneously and then going on together again. Anyhow, no matter how, it was done, and Elias P. Hutchison became one of our party. Straightway, Amelia and I found the pleasant benefit. Instead of quarreling, as we had been doing, we found that the restraining influence of a third party was such that we now took every opportunity of spooning in odd corners. Amelia declares that ever since she has, as the result of that experience, advised all her friends to take a friend on the honeymoon. Well, we did Nuremberg together, and much enjoyed the racy remarks of our transatlantic friend, who, from his quaint speech and his wonderful stock of adventures, might have stepped out of a novel. We kept for the last object of interest in the city to be visited, the Burg, and on the day appointed for the visit strolled round the outer wall of the city by the eastern side. The Burg is seated on a rock dominating the town, and an immensely deep fosse guards it on the northern side. Nuremberg has been happy in that it was never sacked. Had it been, it would certainly not be so spick and span perfect as it is at present. The ditch has not been used for centuries, and now its base is spread with tea growths and orchards, of which some of the trees are quite respectable growth. As we wandered round the wall, dawdling in the hot July sunshine, we often paused to admire the views spread before us, and in especial the great plain covered with towns and villages, and bounded with a blue line of hills, like a landscape of Claude Lorraine. From this, we always turned with new delight to the city itself, with its myriad of quaint old gables and acre-wide red roofs dotted with dormer windows, tier upon tier. A little to our right rose the towers of the Burg, and nearer still, standing grim, the Torture Tower, which was, and is, perhaps, the most interesting place in the city. For centuries, the tradition of the Iron Virgin of Nuremberg has been handed down as an instance of the horrors of cruelty of which man is capable, and we had long looked forward to seeing it, and here at last was its home. In one of our pauses, we leaned over the wall of the moat and looked down. The garden seemed fifty or sixty feet below us, and the sun pouring into it with an intense, moveless heat like that of an oven. Beyond rose the grey, grim wall, seemingly of endless height, and losing itself right and left in the angles of bastion and counterscarp. Trees and bushes crowned the wall, and above again towered the lofty houses on whose massive beauty time has only set the hand of approval. The sun was hot, and we were lazy. Time was our own, and we lingered, leaning on the wall. Just below us was a pretty sight, a great black cat lying stretched in the sun, whilst round her gambled prettily a tiny black kitten. The mother would wave her tail for the kitten to play with, or would raise her feet and push away the little one as an encouragement to further play. They were just at the foot of the wall, and Elias P. Hutchison, in order to help the play, stooped and took from the walk a moderate-sized pebble. See, he said, I will drop it near the kitten, and they will both wonder where it came from. Oh, be careful, said my wife. You might hit the dear little thing. Not me, ma'am, said Elias P. Why, I'm as tender as a main cherry tree. Lord bless me. I, I wouldn't hurt the poor pooty little critter more than I'd scalp a baby. And you may bet your variegated socks on that. I'll drop it fur away on the outside so not to go near her. Thus saying, he leaned over and held his arm out at full length and dropped the stone. It may be that there is some attractive force which draws lesser matters to greater, or more probably that the wall was not plumb but sloped to its base, we not noticing the inclination from above, 
but the stone fell with a sickening thud that came up to us through the hot air right on the kitten's head and shattered out its little brains then and there. The black cat cast a swift upward glance, and we saw her eyes like green fire fixed an instant on Elias P. Hutchison. And then her attention was given to the kitten, which lay still with just a quiver of her tiny limbs, whilst a thin red stream trickled from a gaping wound. With a muffled cry, such as a human being might give, she bent over the kitten, licking its wound and moaning. Suddenly, she seemed to realize that it was dead, and again threw her eyes up at us. I shall never forget the sight, for she looked the perfect incarnation of hate. Her green eyes blazed with lurid fire, and the white, sharp teeth seemed to almost shine through the blood which dabbled her mouth and whiskers. She gnashed her teeth, and her claws stood out stark and at full length on every paw. Then she made a wild rush up the wall as if to reach us, but when the momentum ended, fell back, and further added to her horrible appearance, for she fell on the kitten and rose with her black fur smeared with its brains and blood. Amelia turned quite faint, and I had to lift her back from the wall. There was a seat close by in shade of a spreading plane tree, and here I placed her whilst she composed herself. Then I went back to Hutchison, who stood without moving, looking down on the angry cat below. As I joined him, he said, Wall, I guess that air the savagest beast I ever see, except once when an Apache squaw had a, an edge on a half-breed, what they nicknamed Splinters, because of the way he fixed up her papoose, which he stole on a raid just to show that he appreciated the way that they had given his mother the fire torture. She got that kinder look so set on her face that it just seemed to grow there. She followed Splinters more than three year till at last the Braves got him and handed him over to her. They did say that no man, white or Injun, had ever been so long a dying under the tortures of the Apaches. The only time I ever see her smile was when I wiped her out. I came on the camp just in time to see Splinters pass in his checks. And he wasn't sorry to go either. He was a hard citizen, and though I never could shake with him after that papoose business, for it was bitter bad, and he should have been a white man, for he looked like one, I see he got paid out in full. Darn me, but I took a piece of his hide from one of his skinned posts and had it made into a pocketbook. It's here now. And he slapped the breast pocket of his coat. Whilst he was speaking, the cat was continuing her frantic efforts to get up the wall. She would have taken a run back and then charge up, sometimes reaching an incredible height. She did not seem to mind the heavy fall which she got each time, but started with renewed vigor, and at every tumble her appearance became more horrible. Hutchison was a kind-hearted man. My wife and I had both noticed little acts of kindness to animals as well as to persons, and he seemed concerned at the state of fury to which the cat had wrought herself. Well, now, he said, I do declare that poor critter seems quite desperate. There, there, poor thing. It was all an accident, though that won't bring back your little one to you. Say, I wouldn't have had such a thing happen for a thousand just shows what a clumsy fool of a man can do when he tries to play. Seems I'm too darn slipper-handed to even play with a cat. Say, Colonel, it was a pleasant way he had to bestow titles freely. I hope your wife don't hold no grudge against me on account of this unpleasantness. Why, I wouldn't have had it occur on no account. He came over to Amelia and apologized profusely, and she, with her usual kindness of heart, hastened to assure him that she quite understood that it was an accident. Then we all went again to the wall and looked over. The cat, missing Hutchison's face, had drawn back across the moat and was sitting on her haunches as though ready to spring. Indeed, the very instant she saw him, she did spring, and with a blind, unreasoning fury which would have been grotesque 
only it was so frightfully real. She did not try to run up the wall, but simply lunched herself at him, as though hate and fury could lend her wings to pass straight through the great distance between them. Amelia, womanlike, got quite concerned and said to Elias P. in a warning voice, Oh, you must be very careful. That animal would try to kill you if she were here. Her eyes look like positive murder. He laughed out jovially. Excuse me, ma'am, he said, but I can't help laughing. Fancy a man that has fought grizzlies and Injuns being careful of being murdered by a cat. When the cat heard him laugh, her whole demeanor seemed to change. She no longer tried to jump or run up the wall, but went quietly over and, sitting again beside the dead kitten, began to lick and fondle it as though it were alive. See, said I, the effect of a really strong man. Even that animal in the midst of her fury recognizes the voice of a master and bows to him. Like a squaw, was the only comment of Elias P. Hutchison as we moved our way round the city fosse. Every now and then we looked over the wall and each time saw the cat following us. At first, she had kept going back to the dead kitten, and then, as the distance grew greater, took it in her mouth and so followed. After a while, however, she abandoned this, for we saw her following all alone. She had evidently hidden the body somewhere. Amelia's alarm grew at the cat's persistence, and more than once she repeated her warning, but the American always laughed with amusement till finally, seeing that she was beginning to be worried, he said, I I say, ma'am, you needn't be scared over that cat. I go healed, I do. Here he slapped his pistol pocket at the back of his lumbar region. Why, sooner than have you worried, I'd shoot the critter right here and risk the police interfering with a citizen of the United States for carrying arms contrary to regulations. As he spoke, he looked over the wall, but the cat on seeing him, retreated with a growl into a bed of tall flowers and was hidden. He went on. Blessed if that air critter ain't got more sense of what's good for her than most Christians. <laughs> I guess we've seen the last of her. You bet. She'll go back now to that busted kitten and have a private funeral of it all to herself. Amelia did not like to say more, lest he might, in mistaken kindness to her, fulfill his threat of shooting the cat. And so we went on and crossed the little wooden bridge leading to the gateway whence ran the steep paved roadway between the burg and the pentagonal torture tower. As we crossed the bridge, we saw the cat again down below us. When she saw us, her fury seemed to return, and she made frantic efforts to get up the steep wall. Hutchison laughed, as he looked down at her and said, Goodbye, old girl. Sorry I injured your feelings, but you'll get over it in time. So long. And then we passed through the long, dim archway and came to the gate of the burg. When we came out again after our survey of this most beautiful old place, which not even the well-intentioned efforts of the Gothic restorers of forty years ago had been able to spoil, though their restoration was then glaring white, we seemed to have quite forgotten the unpleasant episode of the morning. The old lime tree with its great trunk, gnarled with the passing of nearly nine centuries, the deep well cut through the heart of the rock by those captives of old, and the lovely view from the city wall whence we heard, spread over almost a full quarter of an hour, the multitudinous chimes of the city, had all helped to wipe out from our minds the incident of the slain kitten. We were the only visitors who had entered the torture tower that morning, or at least said the old custodian, and as we had the place all to ourselves, we were able to make a minute and more satisfactory survey than would have otherwise been possible. The custodian, looking to us as the sole source of his gains for the day, 
was willing to meet our wishes in any way. The torture tower is truly a grim place. Even now, when many thousands of visitors have sent a stream of life and the joy that follows life into the place. But at the time I mention, it wore its grimmest and most gruesome aspect. The dust of ages seemed to have settled on it, and the darkness and the horror of its memories seemed to have become sentient in a way that would have satisfied the pantheistic souls of Philo or Spinoza. The lower chamber where we entered was seemingly in its normal state, filled with incarnate darkness, even the hot sunlight streaming in through the door seemed to be lost in the vast thickness of the walls, and only showed the masonry rough as when the builder's scaffolding had come down. But coated with dust and marked here and there with patches of dark stain which, if walls could speak, could have given their own dread memories of fear and pain. We were glad to pass up the dusty wooden staircase, the custodian leaving the outer door open to light us somewhat on our way. For to our eyes, the one long-wicked, evil-smelling candle stuck in a sconce on the wall gave an inadequate light. When we came up through the open trap in the corner of the chamber overhead, Amelia held on to me so tightly that I could actually feel her heart beat. I must say, for my part, that I was not surprised at her fear, for this room was even more gruesome than that below. Here there was certainly more light, but only just sufficient to realize the horrible surroundings of the place. The builders of the tower had evidently intended that only they, who should gain the top, should have any of the joys of light and prospect. There, as we had noticed from below, were ranges of windows, albeit of medieval smallness, but elsewhere in the tower there were only very few narrow slits, such as were habitual in places of medieval defense. A few of these only lit the chamber, and these so high up in the wall that from no part could the sky be seen through the thickness of the walls. In racks, and leaning in disorder against the walls, were a number of headsmen's swords, great double-handed weapons with broad blade and keen edge, Hard by were several blocks whereon the necks of the victims had lain, with here and there deep notches where the steel had bitten through the guard of flesh and shored into the wood. Round the chamber, placed in all sorts of irregular ways, were many implements of torture which made one's heart ache to see, chairs full of spikes which gave instant and excruciating pain, chairs and couches with dull knobs whose torture was seemingly less but which, though slower, were equally efficacious. Racks, belts, boots, gloves, collars, all made for compressing at will, steel baskets in which the head could be slowly crushed into pulp if necessary, watchman's hooks with long handle and knife that cut at resistance. This a specialty of the old Nuremberg police system, and many many other devices for man's injury to man. Amelia grew quite pale with the horror of the things, but fortunately did not faint, for being a little overcome, she sat down on a torture chair, but jumped up again with a shriek, all tendency to faint gone. We both pretended that it was the injury done to her dress by the dust of the chair and the rusty spikes which had upset her, but Mr. Hutchison acquiesced in accepting the explanation with a kind-hearted laugh. But the central object in the whole of this chamber of horrors was the engine known as the Iron Virgin, which stood near the center of the room. It was a rudely shaped figure of a woman, something of the bell order, or, to make a closer comparison, the figure of Mrs. Noah in the children's ark, but without the slimness of waist and perfect rondure of hip which marks the aesthetic type of the Noah family. One would hardly have recognized it as intended for a human figure at all, had not the founder shaped on the forehead a rude semblance of a woman's face. This machine was coated with rust without and covered with dust. A rope was fastened to a ring in the front of the figure about where the waist should have been, and was drawn through a pulley fastened on the wooden pillar which sustained the flooring above. The custodian pulling this rope showed that a section of the front was hinged like a door at one side, 
We then saw that the engine was of considerable thickness, leaving just room enough inside for a man to be placed. The door was of equal thickness and of great weight, for it took the custodian all his strength, aided though he was by the contrivance of the pulley, to open it. This weight was partly due to the fact that the door was of manifest purpose, hung so as to throw its weight downwards, so that it might shut of its own accord when the strain was released. The inside was honeycombed with rust. Nay, more, the rust alone that comes through time would hardly have eaten so deep into the iron walls. The rust of the cruel stains was deep indeed. It was only, however, when we came to look at the inside of the door that the diabolical intention was manifest to the full. Here were several long spikes, square and massive, broad at the base and sharp at the points, placed in such a position that when the door should close, the upper ones would pierce the eyes of the victim, and the lower ones his heart and vitals. The sight was too much for poor Amelia, and this time she fainted dead off and I had to carry her down the stairs and place her on a bench outside till she recovered. That she felt it to the quick was afterwards shown by the fact that my eldest son bears to this day a rude birthmark on his breast, which has, by family consent, been accepted as representing the Nuremberg Virgin. When we got back to the chamber, we found Hutchison still opposite the Iron Virgin. He had been evidently philosophizing, and now gave us the benefits of this thought in the shape of a sort of exordium. Well, I guess I've been learning something here while Madam has been getting over her faint. Appears to me that we're a long way behind the times on our side of the big drink. We used to think that out on the plains that the engine could give us points in trying to make a man uncomfortable, but I guess your old medieval law and order party could raise him every time. Splinters was pretty good in his bluff on the squaw, but this here young miss held a straight flush all high on him. The points of them spikes are sharp enough still, though even the edges are eaten out by what used to be on them. It'd be a good thing for our Indian section to give some specimens of this here play toy to send round to the reservations just to knock the stuffing out of the bucks. And the squaws, too by showing them as how old civilization lays over em at their best. Guess but I'll get in that box a minute just to see how it feels. Oh, no, no, said Amelia. It is too terrible. Guess, ma'am, nothing's too terrible to the exploring mind. I've been in some queer places in my time, spent a night inside a dead horse while a prairie fire swept over me in Montana territory, and another time, slept inside a dead buffler when the Comanches was on the warpath, and I didn't care to leave my yard on them. I've been two days in a caved-in tunnel in the Billy Bronco gold mine in New Mexico, and was one of the four shut up for three parts of a day in the caisson what slid over on her side when we were setting the foundations of the Buffalo Bridge. I've not funked an odd experience yet, and I don't propose to begin now. We saw that he was set on the experiment, so I said, Well, hurry up, old man, and get through it quick. All right, General, said he, but I calculate we ain't quite ready yet. The gentlemen, my predecessors, what stood in that there canister, didn't volunteer for the office, not much, and I guess there was some ornamental tying up before the big stroke was made. I want to go into this thing fair and square, so I must get fixed up proper first. I dare say this old galoot can rise some string and tie me up according to sample. This was said interrogatively to the old custodian, but the latter, who understood the drift of his speech, though perhaps not appreciating to the full the niceties of dialect and imagery, shook his head. His protest was, however, only formal and made to be overcome. The American thrust a gold piece into his hand, saying, Take it, par. It's your pot. And don't be scared. This ain't no necktie party that you're asked to assist in. He produced some thin, frayed rope and proceeded to bind our companion with sufficient strictness for the purpose. When the upper part of his body was bound, Hutchison said, Hold on a moment, Judge. Guess I'm too heavy for you to tote into the canister. You just let me walk in. Then you can wash up regarding my legs. Whilst speaking, 
he had backed himself into the opening, which was just enough to hold him. It was a close fit, and no mistake. Amelia looked on with fear in her eyes, but she evidently did not like to say anything. Then the custodian completed his task by tying the American's feet together so that he was now absolutely helpless and fixed in his voluntary prison. He seemed to really enjoy it, and the incipient smile which was habitual to his face blossomed into actuality as he said, "'Guess this here Eve was made out of the rib of a dwarf. There ain't much room for a full-grown citizen of the United States to hustle.' We used to make our coffins more roomier in Idaho territory. Now, Judge, you just begin to let this door down, slow, onto me. I want to feel the same pleasure as the other jays had when those spikes began to move towards their eyes. Oh, no, 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 broke in Amelia hysterically. It is too terrible. I can't bear to see it. I can't, I can't. But the American was obdurate. Say, Colonel, said he, why not take the madam for a little promenade? Yeah, I wouldn't hurt her feelings for the world, but now that I am here, having come 8,000 miles, wouldn't it be too hard to give up the very experience I've been pining and panting for? A man can't get to feel like canned goods every time. Me and the judge here will fix this thing up in no time, and then you'll come back and we'll all have a laugh together. Once more, the resolution that is born of curiosity triumphed, and Amelia stayed holding tight to my arm and shivering whilst the custodian began to slacken slowly, inch by inch, the rope that held back the iron door. Hutchison's face was positively radiant as his eyes followed the first movement of the spikes. Wow, he said, I guess I've not had enjoyment like this since I left New York. Bar a scrap with a French sailor at Wapping. And that weren't much of a picnic, neither. I've not had a show for real pleasure in this rotten continent where there ain't no bars nor engines and where nary a man goes healed. Slow there, Judge. Don't you rush this business. I want a show for my money this game. I do. The custodian must have had in him some of the blood of his predecessors in that ghastly tower for he worked the engine with a deliberate and excruciating slowness, which after five minutes, in which the outer edge of the door had not moved half as many inches, began to overcome Amelia. I saw her lips whiten and felt her hold upon my arm relax. I looked around an instant for a place whereon to lay her, and when I looked at her again, found that her eye had become fixed on the side of the Virgin. Following its direction, I saw the black cat crouching out of sight. Her green eyes shone like danger lamps in the gloom of the place, and their color was heightened by the blood which still smeared her coat and reddened her mouth. I cried out, The cat! Look out for the cat! For even then she sprang out before the engine. At this moment she looked like a triumphant demon. Her eyes blazed with ferocity, her hair bristled out till she seemed twice her normal size, and her tail lashed about as does a tiger's when the quarry is before it. Elias P. Hutchison, when he saw her, was amused, and his eyes positively sparkled with fun as he said, "'Darned if the squaw hain't got on all her war paint. Just give her a shove off if she comes any of her tricks on me. For I'm so fixed everlastingly by the boss,' that I'd durn my skin if I can keep my eyes from her if she wants them. <laughs> Easy there, judge. Don't you slack that all rope, or I'm euchred. At this moment, Amelia completed her feint, and I had to clutch hold of her round the waist, or she would have fallen to the floor. Whilst attending to her, I saw the black cat crouching for a spring, and jumped up to turn the creature out. But at that instant... With a sort of hellish scream, she hurled herself, not as we expected at Hutchison, but straight at the face of the custodian. Her claws seemed to be tearing wildly, as one sees in the Chinese drawings of the dragon rampant. And as I looked, I saw one of them light on the poor man's eye and actually tear through it and down his cheek, leaving a wide band of red where the blood seemed to spurt from every vein. 
With a yell of sheer terror, which came quicker than even his sense of pain, the man leaped back, dropping as he did so the rope which held back the iron door. I jumped for it, but it was too late, for the cord ran like lightning through the pulley block, and the heavy mass fell forward from its own weight. As the door closed, I caught a glimpse of our poor companion's face. He seemed frozen with terror. His eyes stared with a horrible anguish, as if dazed, and no sound came from his lips. And then the spikes did their work. Happily, the end was quick, for when I wrenched open the door, they had pierced so deep that they had locked in the bones of the skull through which they had crushed, and actually tore him, it, out of his own prison, till bound as he was, he fell at full length with a sickly thud upon the floor, his face turning upwards as he fell. I rushed to my wife, lifted her up, and carried her out, for I feared for her very reason if she should wake from her faint to such a scene. I laid her on the bench outside and ran back. Leaning against the wooden column was the custodian, moaning in pain while he held his reddening handkerchief to his eyes. And sitting on the head of the poor American was the cat, purring loudly as she licked the blood which trickled through the gashed socket of his eyes. I think no one will call me cruel, because I seized one of the old executioner's swords and shore her in two as she sat. Okay, welcome back. As I've said in multiple episodes, sometimes I am not the most qualified performer to narrate these stories. Clearly the main two characters are not American and should have accents that are distinct from the American character, right? That's unfortunate. But it's a byproduct of how I do these stories where I just open the book and start recording, having not read the stories to begin with. And it's not the most efficient way to do these things because, I mean, obviously it is faster than sitting down and reading the story. Every once in a while, I will read a synopsis of the story online before I perform the story so that I know where it's going. But it's just fast to open the story and read it and, sorry, and narrate it sight unseen. But it makes for several recordings that I have of stories where I didn't end up liking the story. I'm certainly not going to do a, an episode featuring the story. And what do I do with those recordings? Well, to be honest, they just sit. I've got multiple stories in the, either the process of editing or formatted so that I can edit them when it comes time to do another podcast like this. But there are also at least 10 stories that I recorded and I'll probably never do anything with because you don't want an episode where I am the performer and even I didn't like the story, and then what do I have to say about the story? If you're a Patreon supporter of me, you are aware that I've been doing a series called Rishon Records, where I take a song and I talk about it. I read the lyrics and I talk about what it means to me or my impressions of it. And it got started because of a pink song that I just loathed. But I listened to the lyrics and I thought, huh, there might be something to this song. And so I sat down and, and recorded my thoughts about this, the song, reading the lyrics for the first time. Ever since then, I have only picked songs that I, I, I like a great deal. But the other day I heard a song on the radio and... It was from a band whose first two songs that they played, I hated so much that I decided that I hate this band. I decided they're my least favorite band. 
But the song that was playing on the radio the other day was a song that I liked. And I, in the back of my mind, I was just like, I think I know who did this song. And I was right. Uh, and so I thought, well, maybe I can't hate this band if they're capable of putting out a song like this. And then I thought, well, what would happen if I sat down and I listened to their first song, the one that I that made me hate them in the first place? And I looked at the lyrics and I talked about it. Would that be an interesting episode? I might still do it. Not for a while, but I might still do it. The thing with these stories is that it takes a lot longer to edit them than it did to record them. And I don't want to spend that time if it's a story that I have nothing to say about or it's a story that I have that I didn't like. And The Squaw is a story that I didn't particularly like and I don't have a, a lot to say about it, but it is interesting to me nonetheless. Interesting enough that I was like, yeah, I'm going to do the next podcast about that story. Part of it is that it's just a very interesting set of circumstances. You know, the loudmouth cowboy American and these two reserved protagonists, uh, ostensibly from England, but they could have been uh, from Ireland. I think that there was a reference to Ireland in there somewhere. But I chose not to go back and, you know, re-record the story trying to do an English accent. We've had this discussion before. There are times when I've done that. There are times when I haven't. You're going to get a mix on this show. But one thing that I did do was I initially voiced the American character as a softer, uh, more gentle soul. And he was upset by the death of the kitten. And I, I had him like tearfully delivering his lines. And then later on, there was a part where he sounded particularly heartless. And I thought, oh, you know, I misinterpreted this character. And so I did go back and redo all of his lines so that he was less sympathetic. So he was much less moved by what had happened. He's a braggart and he's coarse. And I'm sure that that's how Americans were seen by the people in Europe of this era because we were all uneducated and we were all violent and loud. And I think that that stereotype has persisted. Even to this day, I would imagine that a lot of Europeans think of us as undereducated, over-opinionated, certainly entitled and loud. When I went to Europe, one of, one of you, uh, Mr. Broughton, asked me about, did you have any ugly American moments? And I didn't know if he meant moments where I was an ugly American, moments where I saw other tourists being ugly Americans. Well, don't you have something more normal to eat? That kind of thing. Or whether it was the Europeans not liking us because we were ugly Americans. And... All three of those things are certainly possible. In the time that I was there, I did see a little bit of displeasure in seeing that we were Americans, and I did see a little bit of, I want things the way that I want them to be. And so I want you to understand that, rather than trying to understand that this is their world and it's not like ours. A small example is that we went to a steakhouse and it was a Chicago-style American steakhouse. So they had baked potatoes, they had the saddest 
most undernourished corn on the cob you've ever seen. And they had French fries. And so I ordered the French fries and uh, asked for ketchup with them. <laughs> and the reaction was like, oh my God. Francine, I'm going to be sick. Thomas. Oh, Thomas, hold it in. Oh, please, Thomas. Oh, think about Worcestershire sauce. Think, think about bangers and mash. Thomas, you will not be sick. You're better than him. Something that my dad said years and years ago when I first moved away from home was, you're going to represent your family. You're going to represent your town. You're going to represent this state. You're going to represent me. So you got to be an example all the time. Keep your guard up all the time. And remember to be on your best behavior. Um, but that's something that has stayed with me. I was aware, like when I was in Los Angeles, that, I hate LA. that people were going to judge where I came from, um, white people. In a lot of cases, when I was working with people that weren't white, they were going to judge me based on how I acted in the same way as, like, I knew a girl from Guam and I hold her as an example of everyone from Guam. I worked with a girl from Belize when I was in LA and I judge all Belenesians, Belen, Belene, I judge all Belenese people uh, by Rihanna. Sorry. Anyway, I found that interesting I, and that might have contributed to me running this story now, the fact that I went to Europe and I I got to be that cowboy uh, who'd once spent a night inside a hollowed out buffalo. Anyway, I hope that that wasn't the case. I hope that people thought that I was one of the good ones, you know? And yeah, if I had it to do over again, I would have worked a little harder on learning basic phrases in German and French and... Uh, brushed up on my Italian, although I, the, the Italian wasn't really necessary, and it was the one place where I might have been useful. But you know, Europe is a massive place, and it would be really cool to go to Scotland. It would be really cool to go to Ireland. It would be really cool to go to Spain, or the Canary Islands, or Bulgaria's in Europe, right? Other places in Germany that I didn't go. Other places in Italy that I didn't go. I'm, I'm not going to get a chance. But I'm just saying that if I did, then I would make it a point to study, to say, okay, I'm going to memorize these 10 or 20 phrases in German, and it's not going to help me when I hear them say them back, because spoken German sounds nothing like written German. But that's something that I regret, and I didn't want to be the ugly American. I'm enough of that here at home. So I am going to leave you... Oh, I guess we need to talk about the maiden in the room. So one thing that's really interesting in this story is that they go to see the Iron Maiden, right? And this was an actual thing that was actual tourist attraction in Germany at the time. And it was believed at that time that this is just what the Middle Ages were all about. You know, just the heinous forms of execution and torture and that sort of thing. And now we believe that that is all made up. Uh, that is all fantasy. But um, this Iron Maiden that existed... Was it in Nuremberg? It was believed to be a replica or, or something that had been made just in the 19th century, maybe the end of the, the, the 1700s, as, as sort of a curiosity. But people came from far and wide to see it and to shudder and imagine the people that had been closed up inside it to die. And um, unfortunately... It was destroyed in Allied bombings during World War II. 
And so all that exists anymore are photographs of it and, you know, drawings from before there were photographs. And then there are replicas that people have made of it over the decades. So we can kind of see what it, it was like. Stoker describes it in pretty precise detail on here, although I think he says that there are uh, blood stains running down from it. You know, look looked like rust, but they were probably blood. The, the belief today, well, at least in 2022 when I recorded this story, is that Iron Maidens are a modern invention. They didn't actually get used in the Inquisition or in the Middle Ages. And there is no evidence of anyone ever having been executed in an Iron Maiden. However, during the, the war in Iraq, just a, a handful of years ago, they raided Uday Hussein's compound and the, the Iraqi citizens stole anything of value. But one of the things that they did not steal was that he had an Iron Maiden, a working Iron Maiden, in his yard. The stories that you hear about Uday are enough to curl your hair. And he was known to torture his people. Specifically, the story that I read was him torturing athletes that didn't represent Iraq well enough during competitions and, uh, you know, in lead-ups to the Olympics. And so he would torture them. And he had an Iron Maiden, a working Iron Maiden. And I saw a photograph of it that was recovered by soldiers, uh, American soldiers that went in there. I found that interesting. And I believe we've had this conversation multiple times in episodes of my shows, but there was an exhibit in Los Angeles when I lived there that was all about torture devices, medieval torture devices. And a group of my friends, including the Guamanian girl, went to it and I, I said I, did, I couldn't go. I just, I didn't want to see that. I didn't want to think about people suffering because I, I, I have a bizarre empathetic streak that makes me a nightmare for people like you. And so when I was going to Europe, when Jeff was giving me like a list of places that we should go, one of the places that he said, oh, of course, we'd want to go was the Tower of London to see, you know, the crown jewels and to see the torture devices. And then there in Germany, there was a torture museum that he had been to that he thought that I would like. And it was the only thing that I told him uh, you know, I, I, I would rather not do that because I was afraid that I would think about the people who had suffered, the people who had died uh, because of ignorance, because of spite, because of greed or jealousy, or maybe they were criminals. Maybe they were thieves or rapists or whatever it is. Um, I just have such a hard time with the idea of people suffering intentionally. Like something that could be avoided, something that didn't have to happen. So we didn't. When, I, when we were in Germany, that was one of the activities that Jeff had on his list, but we didn't do it. And it's not that I regret it, because we did lots and lots of fun things and interesting things. And we did the catacombs under Paris, which was sobering enough. You know what I mean? The thought that every single one of these bones that I saw in front of me used to belong to a breathing, thinking, feeling person. <laughs> it made me feel so small and it made me think that life is tenuous. Life is short. Like the, the Wolfman song goes, life is short. But death is long. I still have that clip. Play it.
I didn't delete that clip for some reason, even though I was going to when I used it a couple months back. But now I know I got to use it a second time. The Iron Maiden that Stoker writes about doesn't exist anymore. But the idea of somebody getting in it just to... I, now, was he doing it because he was a show-off? Was he doing it just because he was a thrill seeker? Was he doing it because there was some something damaged inside his mind? And this is the kind of person that can only become excited where death or danger or the forbidden is involved. We don't know. Obviously, he got in it so that you could have this ending to the story because it's fiction. But for those of you who love cats, I can see you hating this story because it is rough what happens to that kitten, but in also enjoying the story, embracing the story because the cat gets her revenge and how. I guess that's it. There are a lot of stories that involve cats, aren't there? Just recently, Marshall Latham Thank you. And I watched an adaptation of The Black Cat. And I believe I did a recording of The Black Cat just a year or so ago that we ran. And, um, you know, the idea of this guy kills or tortures a cat out of spite or out of, you know, drunkenness or just out of, he had a bad day and he took it out on this animal. But then his downfall is brought about because of this animal. I think all of us can appreciate that, whether we are cat lovers or not. And this story is a cousin to that, definitely. And, I, you know, I hope that you got something out of it. That you enjoyed my performance, at least. That you enjoy maybe the language of the story. Or, or me talking about it afterwards. I love Dracula, I've mentioned multiple times. I found that book to be absolutely superb. And back in my days before having a Patreon and all that, one of the things that I thought about doing was sitting down and recording Dracula. And if you recall this, I, I did Dracula's guest on this show. I'm assuming it was this show years ago. And um, Stoker also wrote a short story called The Lair of the White Worm. That they made a movie of in the 80s, about 87, 86. And uh, I always meant to sit down and read that story. And so maybe I will do that in the months ahead and you'll get another Stoker story from me. The reason I never did the Dracula reading is because it would have taken years. Even the recording of it was beyond my means in those days. Now I have a nice microphone. I have a chip that Big sent me that, that means that I could record 30, 40 hours before having to worry about space. But the idea of sitting down and doing all of Dracula in different voices and stuff really appealed to me until I found out that it has been done because it's in the public domain and it's been done better. Somebody did a full cast performance just in the last decade or so where, because it's an epistolary novel where each chapter is told by somebody's voice either in a letter or a journal entry or telegrams or a fourth thing, you could have a different narrator for each one. And I would love to listen to that. I'll bet it's out there because it's, you know, again, Dracula is in the public domain. You can copyright your performance of it, but anybody can do it. I didn't do it, and I, I, I regret it a little bit, but I don't regret it that much because it would have been so much work. But maybe I could have put it out for money and people would have bought it around Halloween. Every single year I would have gotten some royalties on it. 
I'm not sure that that's a regret of mine. Just today, I was looking through a box in my room. It was other boxes were piled on it, and I found one of those Doomerest of Terra books by E.C. Tubb from the first year that I be, was doing audiobooks. And if you recall, I was given the contract to do all of his books, and he had like 35 books. But I dragged my feet so long. Yeah, I think it was two years or three years before I finally finished the last one that they ended up giving all the rest of the books to someone else who I guess was reliable or, or who would do it faster. And that is kind of a regret of mine. I wish that I had, well, I wish that I had been doing it for money instead of just, you know, for experience because I do get royalty checks from those first five books, just not very big ones. But if I had done 35 books, you know, that would have been a much bigger royalty check, I think. It was just a lot of work for so little reward, or what seemed like so little reward. It, it's debatable. Anyhow, uh, that's why I didn't do Dracula. But, you know, I, I, I like his work, and I will continue to do these episodes of uh, this podcast. But I, I, I don't dare tell you its name. I've been Rich Outfield. Good night. And that's it for the podcast that dares not speak its name, which was produced under a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 3.0 license. The music therein, provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, was also under a Creative Commons license. If, unlike me, you enjoy the show and would like to help it continue, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Rish Outfield to donate a dollar and up an episode and bring Rish Outfield back from the brink of despair. I also want to thank Gino Moretto for the logo he designed for the show. Please see it in your heart to forgive him. Theme song is the most mysterious song on the internet. If you know who sings it, then you're the only one. All right, testing. I gotta say this um, this book, not the same, uh, is a little bit worse every chapter. I think it's just my opinion. I have to figure out which. Come on, if it's frozen, right here before I've even recorded a word. Thank you. I didn't want that. After I rinse out my mouth, I start going through the drawers. There's a first aid kit in the bathroom. There's a first aid kit in the bathroom, but that ain't got nothing but stuff or not like this. But that ain't got nothing. But that ain't got nothing but stuff or not like this. But that ain't got nothing but... But that ain't got nothing for something like this. The truck engine goes one more time. The truck engine goes one more time, but it doesn't sound any better. In the drawer by the oven, in the drawer by the oven, I find some plastic wrap. As they exited the store, and Layla admired a row of t-shirts for throwback favorites such as Tron, The Princess Diaries, The Iron Giant, and The Old Friend. Not Chopping Mall, what's... what's something that... Yeah, see, I want to put Human Centipede or something like that in there. Something like Solo. Showgirls? Showgirls is close, but it's still more mainstream than what I want. Showgirls is fine. A chopping mall is 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 better. Human centipede is best of all. See, I'm tempted to put brown depths. I'm tempted to put. A human centipede is the best. Solo. Super babies. I wish there was a synonym for overpriced. God damn it! There is no way there will be a cinnamon. A sit sit sit. Cinnamon. Oh, jeez. Synonym. 
As they exited the store, Layla took a minute to admire a row of costly t-shirts for throwback favorites such as Tron, The Princess Diaries, The Iron Giant, X vs. Sever, and The Old Friends TV Show. Say, I wouldn't have had such a thing happen for a thousand. Seems I'm too darn slipper-handed to even play with a cat. But say, Colonel, I hope your wife don't hold no grudge against me on account of this unpleasantness. Why, I wouldn't have had it occur on, on no account. And another time, slept inside a deaf... Stead and, and another time, slept inside a deaf... Bu- and another time, slept inside a deaf... And another time, slept inside a dead buffler when the Comanches was on the warpath. And... This is the podcast I'm going to try and do every single month in 2022. Three, four, and five. <clears throat> Let me say that again. He returned with a tin of tiny cakes that Silas felt certain had also been a gift from an admirer. From an in From an in From an admirer. From an in From an in Oh, jeez had also been a gift from an admirer. We were all uneducated and we were all violent and loud. And I think that stereotype has pervaded. I missed my exit.